0: Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. Humans of Magic is sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live takes live streaming for tabletop games to the next level. Enable Cardboard Live for any Magic stream, including your own. To learn more, check us out at cardboard.live. Humans of Magic is a complete labor of love. To show your support for this project and to learn about the upcoming book, please visit patreon.com slash jamessu. That's patreon.com slash j-a-m-e-s-h-s-u. My guest today is Luis Scott Vargas. I first reached out to LSV when I started the Humans and Magic podcast three years ago, but for various reasons he was unable to do it. He's a polite guy though, told me to keep asking him, and I did. So, a gazillion tries and three years later, we finally made it happen. Finally, Luis agreed to it. It was happening. We recorded this podcast right after he played the Mythic Invitational. And let's just say that Luis didn't exactly have a great time at that tournament. But he was a complete professional, followed through, didn't cancel on me, said he'd do the recording, and we did it. There's a little bit of tension at the beginning of the recording. I wasn't sure how to proceed or what kind of mood he would be in. I had nothing to worry about, because Luis was just naturally great, he did his thing, and we had a pretty darn good conversation. In true Humans and Magic fashion, we're focused on his personal story, early years, explorations on mindset, and of course, plenty of fun anecdotes. I hope you enjoy the listen. Ladies and gentlemen, today I'm here with the one and only Magic Hall of Famer and Vice President of Marketing at ChannelFireball.com, Luis Scott Vargas. Luis, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm doing great. And whereabouts are you located today, Luis?
1: Uh, So I'm back home in Denver. I just got back yesterday from Boston for the Mythic Invitational.
0: Yeah, that was quite the event. And how was the flight back?
1: Uh, the flight back was just okay. Uh, I guess uh, Southwest has been having some uh, computer issues, and so our flight got canceled. Had to rebook a flight, kind of at the last minute. So that wasn't that's never the best travel experience, but it worked out.
0: I'm guessing that you're probably at this point quite the experience, or you've accumulated a lot of miles in flying. So is there a particular airline that you tend to go with?
1: Oh, I think Southwest is the best uh, airline. It doesn't go internationally, so you know when I go to. The tournament's a little further away. can't use them. But uh, I I actually think that – I've actually kind of like spent a lot of time thinking about this. It's it's funny. Uh, Southwest does a lot of things that no other airline does. And that I believe gives it a pretty significant competitive advantage.
0: So what kind of stuff?
1: So they don't – you don't have a seat assignment. They board by groups. So it's a lot more efficient because everyone boards and you just take whatever available seat you want. So, you know, like if you're in group A, you board before group B and they board before group C, but it's a lot faster of a boarding process. Uh, they don't charge for check bags, which a lot of airlines do. So when you buy a flight on Southwest, you know that the, like the flight uh, charge that you're paying is is what you're paying. They don't – there's no add-ons. There's, there's They're not trying to upsell you on a bunch of other stuff. They also – and this is like a really big one for me because I travel a lot. They let you cancel any flight at any point and get a full refund now the refund is in store credit it is in southwest you know money saved on their system so you can only use it to then buy flights but since i fly them so much it basically means i have full confidence that i'll always get my money back if i if my plans change so what i'll do it's actually kind of funny what what me and uh and ben stark started to do uh for grand prix is we would book our flight there with southwest and we'd book returning flights on like Sunday morning and Sunday night and Monday morning because based on how the tournament went, we'd fly back early. If it if we did really badly, we'd fly back Sunday morning. If we did if we played day two but didn't make top eight, we'd fly back Sunday night. And if you make top eight, you fly back Monday morning because you can just cancel the ones you don't use, use them, use that credit to book your next set of flights and so forth. So that gives me so much confidence that I always just – if I'm thinking about going to an event or and, and I'm not sure, I'll always just book on Southwest, which means they eventually get that money at some point. But because I feel like there's no risk incurred, it's so much different. And yeah, they, they just do a lot of stuff like that. that it's kind of weird that no other airline does. And there's, there's a reason I think Southwest is like the most profitable domestic airline.
0: That's amazing. And as someone who's never lived or grown up in the United States, this is actually brand new to me. So I should actually keep this in mind in the future when I'm booking yeah. flights domestically.
1: Well, I find it interesting first because I fly with them a lot so that kind of materially affects my life, but also just as someone who likes seeing, you know, efficiencies and and optimization, I, I find it really interesting to see what their business strategy is and how I believe it has helped them quite a bit.
0: It is really interesting what you said though about the fact that you don't have assigned seats. Does that has it ever led to you being punished for maybe showing up late to the the gates and uh, figuring out that you have a really suboptimal spot as it were
1: no it's, it's it's not not never been too bad like it it does mean you have to you actually have to show up early and and you get in a how early you board is based on uh how early you check in starting a day before so you, you do have to kind of remember to check in on time in order to get a, to a good seat assignment but or a good uh, boarding group assignment but Honestly, I, I just find their system to be so much better than other airlines that I always check Southwest first. Oh, here's the other thing they do. It's changing a little now, but they used to not have any of their flights displayed on any of the flight aggregator websites. They you, To order to look for Southwest flights, you had to go to southwest.com. And it's funny because you'd think showing up on more places actually makes you better. But I think it's another thing that kind of sets them apart and makes people – it trains people to go to Southwest first. And if the flights are good enough, they'll never go anywhere else. So they're not compared as often. It's, it's really interesting.
0: Right. you got to believe that's intentional, right? It's fairly easy to so. get listed <laughs> at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's awesome. I mean, I can't believe that we're talking and you're already giving me a, an extremely useful pro tip to start.
1: <laughs> that's, that's the plan, I guess.
0: I, I do want to kind of start off just by trying to to walk through. Well, there's a couple of things that we're going to talk about today, but I thought I would just start with an icebreaker question. I mean, you're somebody that is one of the most well-known players, if not one of the greatest players ever in Magic the Gathering. So there's almost nothing that hasn't been written or covered about you. Uh, you know, your achievements are... I think I'll run out of time listing the achievements you had. But I do want to ask you, what is one thing that most people do not know about you?
1: uh i've got uh, two younger brothers antonio and miguel and they actually both play magic <laughs> uh and they actually they were at pax I, I you know i had them come out so we could have a bit of a family type vacation yeah you know, and it was funny introducing them to people because like people yeah i mean they they, they play magic like locally like wow well, my, my brother antonio goes to fnm every week and it's kind of funny because He'll often, he's often had the experience of someone looking at the pairing slip and asking if I'm related, you know, he's related to me. He says, yeah, but don't worry, I'm bad at magic.
0: Dave,
1: <laughs> they, I mean, they, 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 like, let's just say I'm the best Scott Vargas by a lot. Uh,
0: <laughs> I think that's a pretty objective and fair claim. Yeah,
1: yeah, but but it, it is just funny because uh, they are involved in magic, but just not in anywhere close to the same degree. And, like, it, it is, I've always thought kind of interesting for them too, kind of how they get to, to see the residual effects of that. My brother, Miguel, who's way less connected to magic. Like he just plays commander every now and then, but you know, mostly doesn't play seeing this whole spectacle and seeing how people interact and, and all that. And he thought, he thought it was pretty fun to watch.
0: Are you guys looking similar in terms of physically similar? Did you guys look alike in, in any way?
1: (laughs) Uh, Me and Antonio look somewhat alike, for sure. Uh, Miguel looks very different. He's also 11 years younger than me, and uh, so you would not have guessed that we're related just based on looking at us now.
0: Right, and I'm only asking because you're you're well-known online for being a master troll. (laughs) <laughs> maybe I'll put it – maybe I'll say humorist. Uh, you have some – No, accurate. no. Troll trolls definitely accurate. <laughs> okay. okay. I wasn't sure if I was going to offend you, but I was curious if Antonio ever followed in your footsteps and maybe posed as Luis Scott Vargas at some points in time.
1: <laughs> no. Uh, he, he hasn't done that, though. Our family, especially my, my dad's side is kind of where it comes from, uh, are, are all very much like that. You know, There's a lot the, – the trolling genes do uh, kind of run pretty deep. I remember my dad's brother, my uncle, got for Christmas – Uh, got me a box of cereal. There was a toy inside it, but I opened it and it was just like a box of Cheerios. And uh, as a a seven-year-old kid, I didn't find that very amusing.
0: Oh my gosh, that must have been very traumatic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Christmas is a big deal when you're seven years old. And then uh, Antonio had been singing the song, you know, All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth, just some Christmas jingle. So he got him like two teeth on a keychain. And that was like the present he got him. It was just
0: like. <laughs> oh my gosh! Was there also a note in there that said Santa Claus is not real?
1: Uh, there wasn't, but I think, I, th- I think at that point we knew Santa wasn't real. I don't remember which Christmas this was, but uh, all I know is that we 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 got a lot, enough of this growing up that I think that uh, me and Antonio definitely are 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 on the trolley side. My youngest brother Miguel is not really though.
0: Okay, so Miguel is a little bit more serious as far as this stuff is concerned
1: uh he no he's not even more serious he just doesn't really troll people he's actually a a lot more outgoing it's kind of funny he he like we would go back you know to to the hotel after you know packs after all the we had dinner did hangouts it's like midnight and then miguel would just go out because he's i don't know i guess he's what 24 or whatever 25 you know he's interested in in seeing boston's nightlife and leaving at midnight and hanging out till 4 a.m doing who knows what, but uh, <laughs> it's a little different than, than than the two of us.
0: Totally, I think you and I are a little bit more towards the later parts of our years, or middle age, <laughs> as it were, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, this this is really cool, and it actually explains so much. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Yeah, so I thought I would just sort of go right back to the beginning, I always like to do this with people on the show. I would love to, for you to tell me a little bit about your family situation, your parents. You, you've told me a little bit about your siblings already, but I would love to know about a little bit more about your family and where you grew up and anything that you want to tell me, basically.
1: So, uh, you know, I grew up in Oakland. I lived in Oakland uh, until I went to college. So, I lived in California nearly my whole life. I ended up moving to Denver uh, seven years ago now. But other than that, I lived I lived in various parts of California, um, and n- it's kind of funny because n- my parents are not gamers um, and did not actually like me playing Magic very much and They because, you know, uh, I'm sure you have experience with how gamers can be and the obsessiveness that comes with it. And I got really obsessed with Magic. And as a kid, you know, because I, I learned how to play Magic when I was like 11. As a kid, I, I, you know, especially like in high school, I just started spending so much time on magic that my like, grades were suffering and my parents were pretty unhappy about that. Cause you know, they, they, they were always, and are always very much n- not the kind of parents who would tell me what to do or direct my life in like a really like they're, they're not helicopter parents. They're, they, they, they did a very good job of kind of showing me and my brothers that we can do kind of what we want to do, you know, and to, with some limits and magic kind of went past that for them because it was to the exclusion of other things I was doing. So I actually stopped playing Magic in high school because my parents basically wouldn't let me. <laughs> and uh, it's funny looking back on that now because they're both very supportive now of of you know my Magic endeavors. But that's now it's now my career. Clearly, it means a lot to me and has a lot of opportunity there. But when I was a you know when I was a kid getting bad grades in high school, they're like, "You're spending too much time playing Magic. Like you need to focus on school or whatever."
0: can you tell me a little bit about your parents in a little more detail? For example, what are their personalities like? And what were their occupations? And just all that stuff I'm really curious about.
1: Sure. Um, So my mom's side of the family is from Minnesota. um, And that's where my parents met actually is in Minnesota. Um, And my mom has three younger brothers, my uncles who are I, you know, I, I have a lot of uncles. I have, I guess, six uncles. Cause my, my mom has three brothers. My dad has two brothers or five uncles. Well, I did not do the math right. Um, but, uh, my mom was very much like, I mean, she's a hippie. Like she, she, that that's, that's kind of like what, you know, she's very, she's very empathetic. She's very, she's very like, you know, conscious on when it comes to like social justice and the environment and a lot of, a lot of that kind of thing. And she, She's very open, and you know, when when as we were kids, she tried to expose us to a lot of different situations and different different ways to be. I remember, like, you know, you know my parents would go to like protests when I was a kid, and I would go with them, and I because I had to. I'm a kid, and I remember that being part of like just yeah. I did not realize that's not what most people did, <laughs> uh, and I think magic is not the not the sort of thing she would like it's not that it wasn't the sort of thing she would want to do. And she, I mean, she understands that I love it, but being inside playing a game, you know, especially one that's like pretty expensive and, and it takes a lot of time is she's a lot more connected to like nature. And she, you know, she lives on like a working farm now and, uh, she's able to, you know, she raises chickens and stuff like that. So it's a very different experience than what she's used to, but she also always did a very good job of teaching us to keep an open mind. Um, my dad, oh, and she's an, and she wasn't a nurse. She recently retired, but she was a nurse for you know twenty five years, something like that. And uh, which is which is kind of funny because she she definitely uh, because she knows all the things that any like bump or illness could be. She like kind of identifies them. <laughs> I think I think she's like almost on the other side of like, well, this could be bad, so we're gonna get it checked out. But um, uh, my dad is pretty different. My dad uh, is. Is, like I said, definitely a troll. He does have a lot of that. I've gotten a lot of that humor from him. He also, um he also is uh, again, very, very much like in favor of like learning and deciding, you know, make coming to your own conclusions and, and keeping an open mind. Uh, he was a chemist and then he was a teacher for quite a while. And then he was someone who ran science workshops that basically taught teachers how to teach, you know, like it kind of gave them tools to do that to teach science. So He's, he's super into all of that kind of thing. And I think Magic, you know, one of the first games of Magic I ever played was against my dad. Though he didn't really play after that. He was just doing that because I needed someone to play against. Uh, he But he's definitely more on the side of, like, he, he always loved computers and technology. Like, we always had computers even even back when I was a kid. And it was not something that was, like, super common. Um, yeah, I, I guess, like, I think that the biggest thing I got from them actually was how much you should like what kind of what mattered, like my dad quit a job that paid a lot of money as a chemist to, to being a teacher, which does not pay a lot of money, because he didn't like what he was doing. And he wasn't passionate about it. And that that's like one of the biggest things I've, I've learned is, I, I think following what you're passionate about is good. I mean, within reason, like, I I really hate when people are like, just, you know, just follow your dreams and it'll all work out because, you know, it, it, it won't, it doesn't always work out. Often, it does not work out. To be successful, you have to be very lucky. But I also but I think, another good part of that too, is try to, you know, try to follow what you are passionate about or don't make decisions based on just money. Don't, you know, don't get bribed to do something. And that comes with, you know, a healthy dose of privilege of that, you know, you're in a financial situation where you can pick and choose what you want to do, or you can take a, you know, take a job that pays less because you're still making enough money to get by. Obviously people have to do what they have to do, but I think it's if, if you're, if you can afford to do so, it's really good to not make decisions solely based on what is the most financially lucrative because there's just a lot more that goes into life and what you what you do other than that and i I think that's something that came through very strongly neither of my parents ever really cared about money intrinsically very much like they made sure me and my brothers were fed and clothed, and we never wanted for anything but you know my parents also weren't wealthy and didn't but more than that didn't really care about accumulating wealth or you know didn't make a lot of decisions based on that and i I have always found that to be a pretty valuable perspective because, if you you know that you have, there's a lot of things that it takes to, to lead a successful and ha- happy and well balanced life and money is one of those things but it's not the only thing.
0: Right, it's something that I realize too as I get older. I, I I didn't feel this way when I was younger but I really do think the reason why I ask a lot of people about their their backgrounds is because I really think that your upbringing and your your parents really specifically guide so much of what you end up becoming or a a lot of the values that you have. I mean, you just can't help but be aligned to that. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, where you come from and how you're raised obviously impacts you quite a bit. Uh, At some point, you realize your parents aren't (laughs) omnipotent and, (laughs) you know, they they, they make mistakes and they're human and all those things. But that still doesn't mean you can't look back and, and realize how much of who you are now is shaped by kind of what you learned and saw growing up.
0: What kind of things did you enjoy doing as a kid before you found Magic? Because you had mentioned that.
1: Well, uh, you know, I, I was pretty young. I was 11 when I first started to play. But I was, like, in the Boy Scouts. In fact, my my friend Seth and I, were we bought a starter deck of Revised and, like, two packs of the Dark at the same time. And we were both in, like, the same Boy Scout troop. We were, you know, we were, we were best friends in, in elementary and middle school. Um, so I liked, you know, I liked rock climbing and whitewater rafting and hiking. I still love hiking and being outside. It's one of the things I actually love about being in Colorado is all frequently just go hike in the mountains. Cause you can just drive there for like, you know, you drive for 20 minutes. You're already there. Um, and, you know, I, I played some sports. I was, you know, kind of encouraged to by my parents just to, to try these things out. So I remember, you know, I played basketball and football in middle school and I did cross country in high school. Um, but the, I was never like passionate about it like I I like those things I you know I still try to do do various things like that but uh I was definitely not nowhere near as passionate about like uh sports uh as I as I am about magic
0: you're obviously very competitive when it comes to magic and that's led to a lot of your success I would infer were you competitive in all these other things as well before you found magic
1: uh, no, not, not quite in the same way. Uh, part of it was like, I was never near the best at them. And, you know, that, that didn't, it didn't really let a fire in me to, to become, try to become the best cause I didn't care about it that much. Uh, but later I would become a lot more competitive. And I think I did need a competitive outlet, uh, for me for a while, that was chess. I was in the chess club in high school and, you know, I would play a lot of chess. Uh, and then in college before I picked up magic again, I was a competitive uh, Street Fighter player. I actually played at tournaments. I re- represented my uh, my college at one like intercollege tournament that we had, and I was really into that. But then I kind of dropped that because uh, when 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 I started playing Magic again, that that was like, oh wow, it really clicked that this is what I should be doing.
0: Yeah, was it Street Fighter?
1: Uh, so I played the the game. I was best at was Capcom versus SNK two. I was also good at uh, Capcom versus SNK one. I wasn't as good, you know, at, at some of the other versions, but I, I really did play those two those two games a lot, and uh, I was never a, a, as you know, well. <laughs> I was never as good at Street Fighter as I as I would end up being at Magic, but that's true of most things that I do. <laughs> uh, I I I I was kind of like when it comes to Street Fighter, like. I, like the the magic equivalent of the guy who would uh you know go go four four at PTQs a lot. Like I could I could I could win some matches. I could compete. I was really not going to top eight. And also there's just not that much variance in Street Fighter. So the the better player is going to win almost all the time. So I wasn't it wasn't super likely that I would you know luck my win way into into a top eight or whatever.
0: Yeah, wow, that's great. I never knew you played K. We should probably get a game sometime if we could ever find Oh, yeah, out that'd be consoles.
1: sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be difficult.
0: So Seth was really the guy, your friend, that you got introduced to Magic with. You guys got decks together when you were in the Boy Scouts. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so the two of us played. We started going to our local shop, which we could walk to, uh, Dragon's Den, which is long since passed. Um, I ended up meeting you know like other folks who played magic and kind of uh, kind of becoming a part of the local community a little bit there uh, there was it, it, I, so at this point i've like you know i i played i played magic very at a at a very like consistent level for like over the last probably now 15 years but the first half of like the time i spent playing magic it I was very on and off cuz i wasn't as connected I was definitely not connected to the tournament scene at all, but even just like the local community, like it wasn't always magic that I would play, like, and I would take breaks and stuff like that. So it, it was kind of spotty the first couple years, just because, you know, when you're a casual player and you just like have a bunch of cards, like if you don't go play for a while, it doesn't, you don't really feel it, you know, because it's not as, you're not as quite as enmeshed with it. Whereas right now, like if I took two months off playing magic now, it would be crazy. I can't even imagine doing
0: that. Right, you you just feel so disconnected if you even take two months off, right?
1: Yeah, totally. And and you know, for better or for worse, <laughs> uh,
0: it's just such an interweave part of my life here now. And I know it's always hard to look back at yourself, but obviously you were a casual spike at that time. Was there a particular point or points in which you realized that you were actually pretty good at magic? Like, was there some achievement or something that someone said to you that Sort of signify that, or did you always kind of know it? Uh,
1: I I didn't actually know it until much later uh, when I when I basically started playing Magic again in college, where I would go to our uh, the end zone. It's our, our, our what was our local shop. Uh, also, also the end zone has, al- it has also long been since shut down. Um, and I would do the drafts on Wednesdays, and then I would do the drafts on Wednesdays and Fridays as I started playing more. And then at some point, you know the the guys there said hey you should come to this ptq and I, and I went to the ptq and uh lost playing for top eight and
0: wait so that was your first ptq Hmm. wow so walk me through that which event exactly was that and uh what was the era
1: it was onslaught block constructed so this is like late 2003 beginning of 2004 something like that i think it was late 2003 um it qualified for pt new orleans um and So what it used to be is there's three PTQs in Northern California for a basically every pro tour. And there would be like two in the Bay area, one in Sacramento. And, uh, so I drove down the Bay area, played in the, played in the PTQ lost to David Ochoa actually for top eight. Uh, David and I Webb have, have been friends for a really long time. And, you know, he ended up playing professionally for a number of years as well. Um, lost it, lost to him playing for top eight. The next PTQ I made top eight and played against a friend in the top eight who wanted to go to the tournament a lot more than I did? I didn't really have any aspirations of flying to a Magic tournament. It sounded insane to me at the time. So I, I conceded in the top eight just so my friend could maybe win. Um, and he ended he ended up winning he ended up winning the PTQ. And then uh, the third PTQ, I top eighted and then <laughs> lost to. It used to be that you could mana burn, and, it, and they're also... I don't even know if this was the rule, but this is what the judge said, is I tapped seven lands and then go to untap one of them, and he's like, no, you tapped it. You can't undo it. So I had to play my six mana spell and mana burn and then die next turn because of that extra point of damage. So, yeah, that was pretty frustrating. Uh, but at that point, I felt like, oh, I, I am pretty good at this. I didn't really have a point of reference before, except for that I would win a lot at the local shop. But going to a PTQ and then you know, top eight two of the first three I played in or whatever. It was like, I think I know what I'm doing.
0: And if I may backtrack a little bit, what led you to start playing again in college? Was it just that you felt so bad that your parents didn't allow you to play in <laughs> middle school and high school that no, you just had to I, get back into it?
1: it? It wasn't really that. Uh, I never really had like a a big chip on my shoulder because of that or anything. Um, cause I kind of agreed with them. I needed to do better in high school. Otherwise I would, wouldn't even, you know, end up going to college. But, uh, It was, it was actually that I I was working at the dining hall uh, on campus over the summer and, you know, I was a dumb kid. I, I, I agreed to a schedule that was horrendous. There's no way I would ever agree to this now, but I would work the breakfast, you know, rush or whatever. I would work from like 7am to like noon and then I would be off from noon to four and then I would work from four to eight or four to nine and it's just a horrendous schedule because you have four hours in the middle of the day where you can't do anything. Uh, Like, uh, obviously I shouldn't have done that, but you know, I just like, I didn't, didn't, didn't really know any better. But what I did with those four hours is I remember walking around downtown. and just like, what am I going to do? And then going into this magic shop and they were running a sealed league where you got like a sealed deck and like, I think a starter and like two boosters or something. I don't remember. And then you would play and, every, you know, you would keep track of your wins and losses, you play against other people in the league. And at the end of the month, the four people with the best records would have a playoff and all that. And it was a great way to kill a couple hours. So that actually is what kind of got me back into it.
0: Ah, so it's very practical, actually, to spend the time between your insane work shifts.
1: Yeah. That, <laughs> let's just t- let's just say that it, the, the those hours did not, you know, the fact that I was getting paid $7.50 an hour or whatever did not did not go a whole long a long way towards to making me feel good about that about doing those hours.
0: And also, depending on how much you spend on magic, you probably just ended up <laughs> spending all the money you earned, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, but yes, it was just it was mostly like, hey, I just need to to do something, and oh yeah, magic. I remember magic. I you know, I never I never like forgot magic, but it was more like, oh, I guess I could try playing this again, and then then I got into it really quickly. Turns out, I am I am quite into magic.
0: And so, was it? during those PTQs that you started to get, quote unquote, the fire? Or was it sort of a part of that?
1: So it wasn't actually until the next year when um, there was a pro tour in California, in San Diego, that I decided, hey, I would really like to play in this pro tour. Uh, And and look, again, I say this, not realizing back then how atypical this path was but it was like in my head i'm like okay yeah i want to win a ptq because i want to play in this pt because it's in california and so then i want a ptq like (laughs) (laughs) that's not normally how it goes but it it, you know things were different back then the the formats were much harder and the tournaments weren't quite as big and i don't know i felt like i had a pretty good edge on the field and I i ended up winning a ptq for pro tour san diego 2004 driving down to the pro tour you know, going eight and seven or whatever, but making day two and, and feeling, feeling like I would like to plan more of these, right. uh, which I ended up doing, actually.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. And during this very pivotal period in your magic life, who were the people that you had met that you think really helped you, helped your game or helped you, you know, in any way, really, in magic?
1: So uh, the, the guys I lived with definitely had a big part of this. So what I ended up doing is moving in with guys I met from the local card shop. So it was uh, uh, Ryan, Eirik, and Matt. And I actually still am good friends with uh, Eirik and Matt. I, I don't see Ryan as often. You know, he's kind of lost touch. But uh, but like, you know, for example, at GPLA where <laughs> you 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 and I, you know, chatted just a couple weeks ago. Eirik was actually there uh you know and he was rooming with me for that because he you know we we still keep in touch and he plays magic and goes to tournaments every now and then i think we're gonna hang out in london at the end of the month um and but living with those guys and all of us wanting to play in tournaments and go to these things really did help i mean yes i think that we probably could have stood to diversify what we were doing with our time a little bit more but yeah i don't know we were a bunch of 20 year olds who were just Really into like oh let's, let, let's do this magic thing and so all of us were going to school at the time at, at UC Davis but we all spent a lot of time playing magic and at the card store in fact we would just meet at the card store by between classes after class if you just went there one of you know we would be there
0: probably just obsessing about magic right
1: oh yeah and then then David Achoa who I mentioned I I had played with him like we had been playing you know we played in the Bay Area and we knew each other from there. And, you know, he's just one of my oldest friends at, at this point. I, I actually just got to see him recently. It's awesome, even though he doesn't play Magic anymore. Um, but we would all, always go to tournaments and talk about decks oh, and stuff really? like so
0: that. Oh, really? So he stopped playing Magic?
1: Uh, Yeah, he stopped about a year ago. Um, I mean, he has, like, a, you know, a PT top eight. He was, a, you know, a pro for seven, eight years, something like that. But he he's very, as much as he was obsessive about Magic, he's very, you know, like... When he makes decisions, they're decisions. So he at some some point put down the cards and has not played Magic since then. Like he didn't play a GP in Oakland, where's which is where he lives, you know, last year.
0: And the friends that you played Magic with a lot in in school, the three guys, I know that one of them, you know, was at LA. Is it funny, like looking back? Did they ever expect that you would become the player that you are today, way back then?
1: No, not 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 at all. And they think it's funny because they you know they knew me before that. And then we all played Magic and went to these tournaments, and then, you know, at, over as time happened, like, my career, you know, took the the course it did, and they always think it's really funny to look back on that, because, you know, uh, both Matt and Eric have played in Pro Tours. In fact, <laughs> I played Matt round one of the Pro Tour I won. That was his first Pro Tour. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Eric, Eric played PT Paris, you know, where he had the Cobble deck, because that's what our team came up with. Um, so they have, like, some experience of Magic at, like, a kind of, like, a higher level there, too. But... It's very funny for them because it's such a magic's not a footnote but just like a smaller part of their life even though it was a huge part of all of our lives back then it has continued that way for me and it's kind of funny for them to see that as they you know go through their life as well
0: I know that you're also very good friends with Paul Cheon who currently works at Wizards of the Coast but was streaming for quite a bit before that when did you guys meet how did that happen
1: That's actually like kind of connected because so what happened was Paul and I were on the same clan on Magic Online, uh, Dragon Quest, and uh, at Paul's first pro tour, which was my, like, s- second pro tour, yeah, second pro tour, uh, pro tour Philadelphia in 2005, we met, we both busted out of the PT, and we started uh, drafting, we started money drafting, like, the you know, this is back when people used to actually do that, so you, you do two-on-two two or three-on-three three drafts for, like, you know, 20 or 50 bucks or whatever, and Again, it's been a long time since I've ever seen anyone do this. But this is back when we were like, you know, we were like young, hungry grinders. We th- we cared about the money, and it was a cool way to test our skills against these like famous PT players we'd heard of and whatnot. Um, actually, Paul and I bonded over beating Cedric Phillips. Yes, the exact same Cedric, in, in a money draft 15 years ago. <laughs> we beat Cedric badly three drafts in a row. It was really satisfying. Um, so, that, but then Paul was in Southern California. He was in LA, and. I was in Northern California and then he would come hang out. Like when we, we both would go to PTQs and, and he would come stay with us. And then he ended up actually moving in with us. So the next year, the, it was me, Paul, Eric and Matt. And we, we all lived together. Uh, though Paul was kind of bumming our couch. Like he wasn't like paying rent or anything, but he, you know, he wasn't really in a position to be able to do that. Um, so he, he lived with us for, I don't know, almost two years, solid year and a half, uh, with the three of us plus Paul, wow! Just on the couch, huh? Yeah, yeah. He, he. That was that was where he was at, and we lived, breathed, and ate magic and uh, too much food, but mostly magic. Uh, we, 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 played a ton of Magic Online. You know, we became feared Magic Online grinders back when no one, no one really knew who we were, and we didn't have any accomplishments. But a lot of the people who were good, especially in the U.S., knew who we were and thought we were good because uh, we played all these drafts and because we would play online all the time. And it was kind of it was kind of funny when, you know, when we actually first started seeing some tournament success, the to kind of that transition.
0: It's almost like a parallel to to poker. Like first of all, the way you describe the money drafts reminds me of the movie Rounders, where you're going to these <laughs> oh, underground yeah. games and like try to make money and get win off the the rich, uh, experienced players. I don't want to say rich, just experienced players. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: no, no, no one was really rich at that
0: point. <laughs> yeah, magic is not one of those things like poker for that. And then you're you're talking about sort of the grinding online, you know, making a name for yourself, so that when you actually start to get more accomplished, you start spiking paper magic or paper tournaments, right?
1: Yeah, and that, and that kind, of, you know, that's kind of how how it ended up happening. Though it, it was just funny how how we we at some point you know re- remembering this we were the we were the the great unknowns the future of american magic or whatever
0: <laughs> obviously you and paul go way back and what is something that people kind of extending the question to him what is something that people may not know about paul i mean i know you guys have a great rapport online but what's something unique or interesting about him that people may not know about
1: uh, Paul went. Paul started uh, college at UCLA when he was 13, um, which wow. is yeah, not not typical. Uh, and also, I don't think it. I don't think it's like a very good thing to, to do. Like, I don't. I don't think a 13 year old kid needs to be thrown into that. And I think Paul has some pretty mixed feelings about that as well. But I mean, Paul. Paul's like a, you know one of those genius kids or whatever. <laughs> he is he, he, he? Paul's a really smart dude and. Uh, I, I I remember talking to him about this uh, many, many times.
0: Yeah, I mean, it It must not be easy to associate with people that are way older than you when you're just 13 years old, right?
1: Also, what do they think when they see a 13-year-old in our class? Like, wow, that kid's pretty smart and probably pretty cool. It's more like, oh, that kid think he's smarter than me? He's 13 and in my class, you know? <laughs> like, there's no way that, that kids reacted well to that.
0: Yeah, so you guys still – hang out quite often right i mean probably less so because you guys are both busy with full-time things but
1: yeah i mean i saw paul a couple days ago he was doing commentary at the invitational and uh doing very well at that i think i think paul might just be the best commentator right now and i even say this putting myself in the mix i think paul's awesome so uh, he's really hitting his stride and i think we're we're lucky to have him working on magic and we're lucky that he's doing the other things he does though it is sad that he doesn't stream anymore
0: yeah his streams are very entertaining. Yeah. What do you think is your biggest moment as a Magic player?
1: It's kind of hard to answer that because biggest moment could mean a lot of different things. Like, I think one of the moments, I mean, winning the Pro Tour was the first time, honestly, the first time I felt like maybe I can do this. Maybe this is a thing, you know, because I I had a lot of near misses (laughs) in terms of like I had a lot of exit opportunities when it comes to Magic. And look, here's what's funny is everyone's life, you know, you know, the movie uh, Sliding Doors.
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, right?
1: Right, where where you know she misses uh, a subway door in the beginning of the movie, and then the rest of the movie is just about the two different tracks her life takes based on that. Right. Every person has a lot of these sliding doors moments in their life, and you're just not aware of most of them, right? You like you don't have a movie crew trying to replicate what would happen. Like you know, all of us have missed a bus or missed a flight or left early for something, and probably had our life meaningfully changed as a result and it's hard to track down those moments but when you're a magic professional and magic part of your life those moments are much more clear to you because you can look back and say like wow if my tiebreakers were worse i wouldn't have top aided that pro tour and and won the pro tour and if that happened who knows you know where i would have been or if i drew cards like andrea mangucci beat matt nass at the invitational in one of the games that i watched where if matt's mastermind's acquisition was one card higher he would have won and that would that would have knocked Andrea out of the tournament. And now Andrea has two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, right? Had the cards been in a slightly different order, maybe Matt Nass or maybe neither of them would have had that money. And that money is going to change Andrea's life dramatically. You know, so both in terms of the actual money and the opportunities. Now he's this invitational winner. All of us have stories like that, and Magic has given me a lot of those where I've seen seen times where, you know, had I not made top 16 at the tournament to qualify for the next tournament, I may not have been a professional magic player. Had X happened, you know, Y would have happened. Um, but I think PT Berlin's a really big one. Honestly, being on Spellslingers with with Day 9 was a pretty big one because this was a couple of years ago, you know, and the magic landscape is, is changing, and I know we were going to talk about that uh, uh, later because it, there's a lot to talk about there, but this is back when magic wasn't even close to being, like, a huge deal, and I was on the set of, like, a show that was like actually produced with like a lot of uh, just like it was a, a very big production. I'm, I was definitely not used to that, and even years later, people still talk to me about Spell Slender. So I think it's something that is a has it impacted or touched a lot of people or gotten to a lot of people that don't normally play or aren't in the same audiences. And that's one of the t- first times it felt like it had crossed over into being something that like you know people who aren't super invested in magic might watch. So. I think those are like kind of the two of the biggest things.
0: Great. And you've had a lot of success overall when it comes to playing Magic. What is something important that you've learned from all of this that's perhaps not the stereotypical take it one match at a time sort of advice?
1: I think that the biggest thing Magic can teach you uh, is how to lose, is, is how to deal with things not going your way. And it can be hard, I mean, trust me. I I did not feel good when I got knocked out of the Invitational last week, you know, when, when it was like, I I went (laughs) O2. It's the worst record you could have. Uh, But I I think that magic really does teach you, uh, because it's like a two-pronged thing. It's like, how do you deal when something bad happens to you? And how do you learn from it? And what can you do differently? And it's really important to, to, to to realize when you can and can't. I mean, you know, know, the the old saying, it's like, what is it? Um, Grant me the the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the ones I can, and the wisdom to tell the difference. Like every, people say that, obviously it's an important concept, but magic really drills it into you. Like I've lost more games of magic than almost anyone. Right, I've played so much magic, and it makes it so when I get like a flat tire, I don't I don't get tilted. I don't I don't get really mad. Like yeah, I'm not happy about it, but. I know that it's just going to happen. You're going to run over a nail sometimes, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you're going to be late or your flight's going to get canceled. Sometimes, you know, you're going to drop your ice cream. Like all all of these things happen. And what magic does is it just pounds that into you because most people don't have to confront losing quite so many times, quite as often, you know, as much as when you play magic and you care when you lose at magic. I mean, I still care. And, I think it's really valuable because a lot of people don't it's you don't you're not born learning how to deal with frustration, you know. And get having magic really help give you tools to deal with that, both in terms of accepting when yeah, a bad thing happened, you know, what's next? And also, you know, what am I how am I going to learn from this? What can I do to prevent this in the future? The the second part of that being I made the right decision, a bad thing happened anyway. I'm going to make the same decision next time, not being results oriented. This is another really key part of it where, you know, it, it's like results are clearly a way to get data out of what happened. Right. That's that 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 it makes sense that you would want to do that. But I think if you really think about things and you look at them, you can realize that, you know, if you're if you're going to drive to work and there's two different ways you can take and one way takes 15 minutes, and one way takes 10 minutes. And you take the way that takes 10 minutes and there's an accident and it takes you an hour. That doesn't mean that the next day you should take the the longer route because that doesn't make any sense. You could just have an accident there. You should just take the, the shorter route. And a lot of people do really badly with this where they make a bad decision. It turns out, well, they're like, wow, I made a good decision. Or they make a good decision. It turns out badly. And they're like, that was a terrible decision. I shouldn't do that. And the answer isn't those things. The answer is make the best decision given the information you have. Maybe learn and adjust, you know, adjust from that. Maybe, After the third time there's an accident, you realize, like, wow, this this route actually isn't a very good route because there's, you know, there's, like, a road with a bunch of potholes that always causes accidents or whatever. But most of the time, if you're making the right decision, you should be able to separate that from the outcome and continue to make the right decision uh, as these things go on.
0: Is there something that players can do to have more clarity over those decisions? Because I think everything that you just said... Anyone hearing this will agree 100%, but in the heat of the moment or even after the heat of the moment, they may not—they may miss the forest for the trees and not, not actually think about it that way. Is there something about the way that high-level players or successful high-level players think that maybe you guys have managed to turn on some kind of switch in your brains?
1: I, I think that part of it is if you just look for what you could be doing better, you'll end up... I think in a better, in a better place. Cause the answer is sometimes I couldn't have done anything better. I was going to lose no matter what. And I kind of feel that way about like the invitational, right? Like I just got run over a bunch of games and I don't feel like I had any close decisions, but most games of magic aren't like that. Most games of magic or any other complicated thing you'll do you often have options. And when you, when, when you have an outcome you don't like, I think it's really valuable to look at, look at what you could have done differently. And sometimes you'll study it and come to the conclusion Nope, that I made the right decision. It just ended badly, and that's fine. But you do need to put in that due diligence of let's take stock of what I did and let's see what I could do differently next time because the, it's really important to try to to try to figure that out so that you could improve.
0: What's the best match of Magic you've ever played, and why?
1: <laughs> the the finals match in uh, PT Kyoto against Gabriel Nassif is just one of my all time great matches of Magic. Uh, I mean, it was the finals of the Pro Tour. <laughs> game four was just was just absurd, and we actually, me and Marshall, actually went back and re-recorded commentary over Game four ten years later, and just because it was that good of a game.
0: Right. You were asking for the the original video, as I recall, at some point. Yeah,
1: yeah. We couldn't actually find the original video. Luckily, someone had uploaded it, and they got in, got in touch with me over Twitter. But you know, it was it was just it was just a wild match. Um and you can actually find both the original and the R commentary version on YouTube, I think, at this point. Another match which really, unfortunately, wasn't recorded, so you're not going to be able to go back and watch this, though there was a written feature match, was when I played against Tommy Wallamies for Top 8 of PT London, which is actually my third Pro Tour, and, uh, you know, I, I was pretty excited to, to even be in that in that position. But we, we played this insane match of Limited where at different points I thought I couldn't win, then I thought I couldn't lose, and then I thought I couldn't win, like... I ended up getting decked because there's a card called Hinder, which is counter target spell. Then put it on the top or bottom of its owner's library. During his upkeep with no cards in deck, he played an instant, then hindered it to the top, so he wouldn't so he wouldn't run out of cards. And the sick part was, I knew he was going to do that, but I had to keep you know just play on anyway. But I it was just a, it was just a wild game.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing! I wish it was recorded.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. It, you know, this was back even before there was much video coverage. so I'm not surprised it was.
0: Okay, so Luis, I thought I would talk to you a little bit about Channel Fireball. You've obviously had an instrumental hand in the founding of Channel Fireball, and it's a story that people don't often know too much about. Channel Fireball is a collective. It's a company. It's one of the most influential magic organizations today. And maybe you can just start off by telling me how you were involved in this thing with John and Mashi, and maybe also introduce them a little bit for listeners who may not know much about them.
1: So um, back in 2009, uh, I, I guess it was actually the end of 2008, uh, so the owner of Superstars of Sports, so this is a longstanding uh, comic shop, you know, comic uh, slash cards, sports memorabilia store in Cupertino, San Jose area. Uh, so that's John. Uh, he approached me about wanting to start a new website and, uh, you know, re- launch a whole uh, like a whole new magic website. This
0: is John Sasso, right? Just
1: to so this is John Sasso. Yeah, his dad Gary Sasso actually founded Superstars. Uh, so <laughs> it's kind of funny because when I was younger, me and David Ochoa, we would go to John's store and trade in cards to try and to, this is how we got our first sets of power nine is we would trade in a bunch of standard cards for, for power nine. Cause John all's had a really good buy list. You know, he was all very aggressive about buying cards and that that's how we ended up picking up. Like I remember, you know, trading for a Lotus and a Mox jet and all these things. But, um, you know, John and, and, and Mashi Mashi Scanlon. So he's, uh, you know, if you watch magic TV, he's, he's the guy on the left on, on, Twitter. He, and, they, they approached me about wanting to start a website that they wanted to call channelfireball.com because it would see it's it's a it's, a, it's a, there's two meanings there one is channel fireball like the magic combo right channel plus fireball it's a it's a combo from alpha you know mountain black lotus channel fireball turn on win uh the other is that the whole kind of genesis of the idea was that we would offer channels like TV channels of magic content. Cause at this point, no one was really doing magic videos. That just like, wasn't a thing. And their idea, you know, that they had thought up in, in John's garage as they were sitting around drinking, <laughs> you know, Mashi and John and like Alex Alpen and some of these other guys who, who still actually work at channel fireball. But their, 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 their idea was what if we offered, you know, videos, what if we offered TV, like kind of like TV channels of content. And this would be, it would fill a need that, that you know no one's no one's really filling now, and it, it would be awesome. And so at this point, I was working for uh, Adventures and Cards and Comics, also known as BlackBorder.com, uh, because the owner Avram had always sponsored me and Paul Chion. And, you know, I I owe a lot to Avram. Like he took a chance on us when we were nobodies, like we had never done any sort of magic content. His sponsorship was kind of what let us pursue our magic dreams. And it was a really tough decision to decide whether to go with, you know, John and Mashi and their their goal of making a whole new website and a completely new thing or stay on at the place I already was. And I ended up, you know, after much back and forth and really having a a tough decision, deciding that I wanted to try and start this new thing. Like the idea of creating something new was just so appealing to me. And... You know, we we, we ended up launching uh, Channel Fireball after, well, trials and tribulations with the website, which honestly continue to this day. You know, it's hard to have a good website. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Behind the scenes at Channel Fireball, yeah. Yeah, a a robust website that sells, you know, 10,000 different individual products and has all this kind of content. It is hard to – the architecture for that is difficult. But anyway – we we ended up uh launching channel fireball and it was kind of cool that like kicking kicking off the launch i got second at the pro tour in kyoto so that was like our way of announcing to the whole magic world that like we're going to do this thing
0: that's awesome and as i heard from you and others it i mean you had already hinted on at it but it wasn't exactly a smooth ride so in the beginning of channel fireball the early years what were some of the challenges you guys faced other than the website perhaps part of it was
1: it just—it was a pretty intensive project when it came to both labor and costs, and you know we we basically John and I didn't take a salary for a while, uh, you know, and this is as I'm sure you're you're accustomed to part of the the whole like startup experience because th- this wasn't exactly a startup in that superstars did exist and we had, you know, this inventory and we had all the, like a lot of the physical stuff, but the website was completely new and we didn't have, you know, unlimited resources. So that, that was difficult for a while. Like, you know, Mashi ended up taking a, a, some years off and, you know, working as an attorney cause you know, he's an attorney uh, instead, because we just couldn't really afford to keep everything going the way we wanted it to. And that was not, you know, that was not easy. So
0: was it tough to Was it tough to stick with it? I mean, I'm asking. It's almost like a rhetorical question. It must have been tough. But what was going through your mind at the time?
1: Well, and and see, so this is the part that of thing that that there is some survivorship bias. Like, I don't want to say like, hey, just if you believe in yourself and stick with it, things will be all right. Because often they're not all right. You know, often. Things don't work out. Most, most, thi- most everything, most things fail. Most businesses, most, <laughs> you know, b- mo- most restaurants, mo- just most new ideas, just have a hard time getting off the ground because it is difficult, you know. And, the, you know, depending on what level of success you're looking for, it's, it can be hard to hit. Uh, that said, we we all really believed in what we were doing, and for that reason, we decided to. You know, continue doing it and we thought that it was worth pursuing i don't know how long we could have pursued it if things didn't start to pick up but they did and uh honestly i think offering draft videos was it's not even a hard concept so it's not like i think we're a bunch of geniuses or whatever but we were the only people offering draft videos initially you know just videos of magic gameplay and then i remember john telling me before right before uh Alara Reborn came out like hey you got to do set reviews we used to do set reviews no one really does card by card set reviews you got to do them and now like the set reviews I think are the most popular piece of content that I do the most people who talk to me about them, or the most of the people who talk to me about content mention the set reviews and there are a lot of people's initial entry into magic content just hey how, how can I get better at magic and new sets coming out oh read LSB set reviews you know and just doing that, again, these, these things weren't complicated, but we just did them. And sometimes that's all it takes.
0: Right. It, it makes sense because a lot of players, their first experience with organized magic is actually uh, pre-releases, right? Like People get the hype when a new set comes out, and so they want to read things around the new set in a way that doesn't seem intimidating. So I think the set reviews dovetail into that.
1: Yeah, and it's... You know we're very invested magic players, right? Like I am. I mean, you are. Like I, yeah, I read your book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for doing uh,
0: that.
1: No, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, it can be easy for us to forget how intimidating evaluating new cards are, or new cards is, because and and, and I try to keep that in mind. Like when I'm talking about a card in a certain review, I talk about it as if the person reading it knows not a whole lot about magic, and hopefully there's still value there for people who do. I think there is, but. I, I want to explain, like, why this thing is good. Why, you know, w- what what makes this card good or bad or in between or under what circumstances is it good. And that can be a really comforting tool. I, 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 you know, one of the, the peculiarities of the schedule is my uh, green review, because I always do it in color order, W-Wooberg, right, comes out last. Frequently, people have told me that uh, <laughs> if you live in, like, Australia or, uh, you know, one of the APAC countries that's very, very far ahead of my time zone – they don't get to the last set review before their pre-release. And some people just aren't comfortable playing with the cards until they've had a chance to kind of read, you know, what, I, what I've written about them because that just gives them a lot more understanding of them.
0: Right, right. <laughs> That's really interesting. It just shows you how global the game is and also how much of a, a readership there is, right?
1: Yeah, I think it is funny. I think Magic is certainly a huge global game at this point.
0: So what are some things about starting a magic-related business that people may not necessarily know?
1: Uh, One is, what are you doing to differentiate yourself? Um, Because it's all well and good for me to say like, yeah, we did draft videos and set reviews. Yeah, 10 years ago there weren't those things, or there weren't enough of them. Uh, That's not true now. (laughs) If Channel Fireball were to launch now, it would not succeed, right? Because what would we be offering that's not offered by dozens of, of places at this point? Um, so you, you want to be bringing something new to the table. Uh, another is you really have to, you know, have follow-up, like consistency. One of the, you know, one of the biggest things that we always hear uh, as podcasters, because, you know, I also have a podcast, uh, <laughs> Limited Resources. And that, you know, that we, we, we get talked to by a lot of aspiring podcasters who are who have this great idea. The great idea doesn't matter as much as showing up and doing the thing. Like it does when you're talking about a business because a business is trying to fill a particular niche. But when you're doing a, like something like a podcast, like showing up and doing it and being consistent is way more important because anyone can have an idea and do two episodes. The question is, do you do seven episodes, 10 episodes, 20 episodes, and at that point, have you hit a groove? Have you started building an audience? It's the same as streaming is, yes, you, you do need something to differentiate yourself because there's so many streamers these days, but showing up and being consistent is one of the ways to kind of help build an audience.
0: I love that because that's something that I try to apply to my life as well. Half Over half of the battle is showing up and ideas are free. Execution is not, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Execution is where a lot of people stumble.
0: And I think it applies to magic too because I, I often have discussions about this. People have all these great theories and they you know you know some magic players are super well read they probably have memorized pv's latest article and your article and whatever but at the end of the day there's a certain something to be said for just having a foundation and just grinding magic not to say that you want to grind magic all your life but if you don't go and do it it doesn't really matter what ideas are in your head so it sort of reminded me of that as well
1: yeah exactly it's it is very easy to have you know grand plans and great ideas but Kind of just showing up is not is is another part of that equation that you know you, you really have to apply. It's kind of like you could be the best magic player in the world if you go to one tournament, you're not necessarily going to do well. So you kind of have to go to a bunch of tournaments in order to to really leverage that.
0: Channel Fireball has obviously been a huge part of your career and your life. Basically, walk me through how you continued on that trajectory with Channel Fireball and maybe how you got involved in some of the other ventures that you you have right now
1: so uh you know when we started channel Firewall, i was the editor-in-chief i did a lot of the like article editing you know posted articles contacted authors you know we had original slate of authors that we launched with i don't think any of them still write for us though but you know they were instrumental in in, in launching the website um we've got like i just gotta give them a shout out uh jeremy fuentes uh zane beg john locks uh david ochoa uh Jerry T actually was one of the original contributing members and uh you know getting off the ground like that was was really was really important um i think that uh, part of it is channel fireball kind of let me because it was such a magic related you know line of work and it gave me flexibility it what let me pursue my career in magic which also helped channel fireballs a nice, nice symbiotic relationship there and that's kind of what allowed me to to form the team team channel fireball and really you know, I, our team did dominate for a number of years. We, we were we were by far the best team. I'm not making that claim now, though. We are number one in the team series rankings, but mo- mostly back then we we were bringing something to the table that a lot of people didn't. And you know, we the, we we had a, came up with a lot of really good decks and had a really a lot of really good finishes as a result. In fact, <laughs> it's kind of a beat for the people who, who who didn't get there. But almost every member of the original Team Channel Farwell, is now in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and I think a lot of us owe it to that team. This is, you know, myself, uh, Kibler, Josh Utter-Layton, uh, Owen, um, Ben S., Martin, Shuhai, Paulo. Like, I mean, that these are people who were in the original team. Efro, like, to to have that many Hall of Famers, I think does show that we knew what we were doing, or at least we did a good job of it. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, I think that, you know the the success of Team Channel Fireball and myself was very interwoven with with the, the website Channel Fireball. Even though a lot you know a lot of work got done on the website that I, that wasn't directly done you know r- related to me. So like it was a it continued to grow and eventually you know we we have a lot of employees now and I don't know all of them, which is very different than when we had five people in any them. <laughs>
0: your relationship channel farball has changed over the years tell me about your most recent role that what are you up to right now when it comes to cfb
1: yeah so uh, you kind of introduced me in well, with the with the description that i that i wrote in as the vice president of marketing which is a departure because i for about almost you know seven the last seven eight years i was just the vice president which was a lot more ambiguous and actually more of a title than anything else um that was just kind of reflecting that I was one of the founders. And even though I was involved, it wasn't in the same way. Now I, I have a lot more of a, you know, it took some time to get to that title because we were trying to figure out wh- wh- where I would be best used. And so uh, th- th- that that really does show kind of the, the focus that I have w- with the website now, which is more on the like, you know, marketing and promotions uh, sort of side. Well, still do of course doing content and whatnot.
0: What motivated you to come back in this more defined capacity?
1: Um, it was just there's a lot of exciting stuff going on uh, that I wanted to to be involved in, and we just had a need need for that. Uh, so it, it again it's not it's not that my relationship has completely changed or anything. It's just a little bit more focused than it used to be.
0: That's great you have had other roles or gigs outside of Channel Fireballs. So can you talk me through or walk me through some of those as well? There's some that I think you're still affiliated with uh, today, correct?
1: Yeah. So the reason I moved to Denver in the first place was actually to work for uh, Direwolf Digital, which is a game studio here. And back then it was to work on a a project that never actually ended up coming to fruition, which is very typical when it comes to game development. Uh, but it tr- soon transitioned into working on Eternal, which is a digital card game that, you know, you can play uh, also on on mobile, on PC, on, you know, Steam, iOS. And uh, so I, I'm a senior game designer at Direwolf. So I, you know, I have, I've been more focused on, like, doing event coverage, like I cover our... our Qualifying tournaments leading up to Worlds this uh, you know this year, and do some design work as well. But th- that's one of the reasons that, or, or, or kind of the, one of the the paths that my career has taken, which I didn't anticipate. Which is I've done a lot of game design work, which I, I, I enjoy greatly, and I think does. It, it's funny how it all ties back in because a, a lot of what you're doing when you're playing Magic is you know trying to optimize what you're doing in game and have tactics and strategy Uh, when you're doing game design. It's a lot of very similar, very similar kind of work, even if it's uh, trying to come to different results, you're not trying to optimize winning as much as trying to optimize, you know, what, what's a good user experience. How is a good, good game flow? Uh, What is a good system? You know, what are, what are pleasing gameplay experiences? What kind of players does this appeal to? It has helped me understand magic a lot better. I'll tell you that much.
0: The way you described it, there definitely seems to be a good synergy or relationship between playing the game at a high level and designing a game. But as you started in that role, was it difficult to ramp up in the initially as a game designer?
1: Definitely, it's it's really it's a really hard uh, job. Like it's an awesome and rewarding job, uh, but it's the kind of job where you are tasked with kind of you're you're trying to answer a bunch of questions and you're trying to make a you know you make a bunch of decisions and you very rarely know whether you answer them right like you you it's hard to get the feedback and some things are more obvious than others right like you know to put on my game designer hat nexus of fate the uh, the buy a box promo not a good not a good card uh <laughs> yeah. it doesn't take a professional game designer to tell you that right but on on the flip side like you know which cards are good, which cards like you don't know when you make a set of 300 cards how much each individual card, you know, impacts things or what effects they have because like I can tell you pretty confidently that like printing Baneslayer and Angel made Magic tons of money, you know, Baneslayer really changed the paradigm. It was uh, a big creature that looked appealing that was also good.
0: Yes, it was a spike card. It was also a Johnny card. Like if right. so many demographics,
1: it's the sort of thing where yeah, you can look at some cards like that. But like, you know, when you're trying to dive even deeper, it's really hard to know whether you make good or bad decisions in a lot of cases, because there's a lot of confounding factors where, you know, like the, the Mythic Invitational last weekend was an, an unparalleled success on tons of metrics. Does that mean that all tournaments should be best of one? I don't think so. And I sure hope not. <laughs> but, you know, that was just part and parcel of kind of what all went down. And, Part of your job as a game designer or as a marketer or as anyone who is making decisions and trying to gauge reactions is to try to parse out what was successful, what wasn't, and what what made those things be that way. So uh, game design is really hard. I, I learned a ton from Matt Place. He's actually – he used to work at Wizards um, and he is certainly the most influential person when it comes to game design for me.
0: Okay. And because I've not played the game – what, what would be the elevator pitch or how would you describe the game for people like me who have never experienced it?
1: Eternal is a very deep digital card game uh, that you can also, that is also very fast. You can, it's free to play. You can play it on, on you know, on, on mobile or any other device you want. And it's like legitimately free to play with, you know, a g- great graphics and a, a good interface. And it's easy to pick up and it takes a long time to master. So that, that's, a, that's a feature I like in my games.
0: Awesome. And I'm sure we could do an entire episode on <laughs> Eternal, but I'll, I'll try to stay on, on track here. It is really interesting what you said because I work in software or building software products. And I think there's definitely an art to listening to the data and listening to feedback and also doing things out of your own conviction just because you feel that it's in your gut it just sounds to me like designing a game, you have to balance that as well, right?
1: Definitely. you You, you need to get the right conclusions from what, what the data you have, and you also need to, uh, you know, try to figure out like you don't want to be too biased. like yes, you, you, your gut matters and what and you part of what the reason that you're in the position to make these decisions is because you presumably have made good ones in the past. But you also have to be willing to change that if the data really does indicate that you are doing something wrong. I don't know; it's, it's it's really hard.
0: And in a parallel universe, because you're we're talking about sliding doors in a parallel universe where you are not working on Eternal and you're not working on Channel Fireball, had you considered working for Wizards at some point? Because I, I assume the door was probably open for you at at some point. You know, when you know, in terms of being a designer for them. And I know lots of. Amazing people have walked through those doors in, in, in previous years and in the past.
1: It, it, it's been hard. I've never, I've never seriously considered it just because playing professional magic is such a big part of what I enjoy doing. And I think that it would be really hard to, to give that up. And that's part of, you know, that's part of the reason I never have pursued it. I think there's a lot that would appeal to me about it. And if you, you know, told me as a kid I could maybe work for Wizards someday, I would have been over the moon because it sounds awesome. And it still does sound awesome. It's not that it doesn't. It's just that I, I right I kind of get to have my cake and eat it too, you know, working on the things I get to work on while still playing Magic. And it would be hard to give up part of that. And, and also it would be hard to give up, you know, streaming and being the kind of public facing figure that i am like doing being on lr like you know paul's really happy at wizards and i'm really glad he's there i think paul's incredible he does a great job paul did have to give up streaming you know he he he, and he does the wizard stream like uh every week or every other week but it's not quite the same still it's awesome that he does that i think it's cool but giving up a big part of your autonomy when it comes to how you relate to the public is something that it would be hard for me to do
0: yeah, I mean, just putting myself in your shoes—if you're a super competitive player and you get those highs from competition and playing with the best—it must be hard to almost like force a mandatory retirement on yourself, right?
1: Yeah, and that—that that is kind of how I would have seen it a lot of the time. And you know, my my relationship to competitive play does vary wildly. Like, I took a year off to do coverage, right? Uh, you know, I, you know, my tournament attendance goes up and down depending on how I'm feeling. That said, cutting that off completely is not something that I've ever come too close to doing.
0: You don't have to name any names, but have you had conversations with people about this type of decision? I imagine it must not be easy for them to make that choice to walk through the doors of Wizards of the Coast.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is hard. Uh, it is hard to to be on the other side of things because, I mean, I, I kind of get that experience uh, with eternal as a game designer of getting to watch people play with your cards and react to what you make and complain about the uh, obviously overpowered or underpowered decisions, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cards you make or whatever. Yeah. And there's a satisfaction there. There really is. It's just a different thing. There's not, you don't feel the same kind of rush or wins as at least I get from tournament playing. Uh, you know, I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of people who, who feel that way. So it's a, it's a much more level leveled experience. I, I have also re- heard, you know, kind of felt that on the coverage side where, Look, when you go do coverage of a pro tour, it's a lot of work. There is variance in how you do, right? Like you can have a bad, good tournament or bad tournament or what have you. But when you do it, it's a pretty flat experience. Like the there's not huge highs or or low lows. It's it's more like I'm doing this job. It's a really fun job. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. It's exciting, but it's still at the end of the the weekend like – it doesn't, it, you're going to get paid the same amount you got, you knew you were going to get paid going in. That's just kind of how jobs work. And when you go play at a Pro Tour as a player, it's huge. Like the difference between a Pro Tour where you do well in top eight and, and you, you're just on top of the world and a Pro Tour where you go 05, really big. You don't have those highs and lows when it comes to coverage. And it's the same as kind of true when you, you know, when, when you're designing games, you're not going to get experience quite as high, high, or as low of lows. And, yeah, that, that probably works better for some people. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm an action junkie. It's, it'd be hard for me to give that up.
0: I've talked with a couple of people on the show, and they, they didn't exactly articulate it, but I would imagine for someone like John Finko as an example, there's probably a good reason why they're still going to these events, right? And it's it's the camaraderie, it's but not it's not about the money. <laughs> the, it's not about the money, that's for sure. Yeah, John probably doesn't need it at this point, but uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, I think it's about the community and also about the high-level competition, right?
1: Yeah, and it's, I, I care about those things a, a lot more than anything else. And, you know, like, look, I'm not out here, you know, and I don't think John feels this way either. None of us have, we don't have something to prove. Like, Paulo doesn't have anything to prove, you know, but it doesn't mean it doesn't feel good to do well at a tournament and, you know, kind of feel that rush of success.
0: And let me switch gears into Magic's future, because I, I, <laughs> we've been kind of talking on this and touching on it for the past little while. You had just talked about coming back from the Mythic Invitational so there's a lot of things we can cover here, but maybe first, let me start off by asking you, how do you feel about Arena as a whole? Like, just, just the game itself. Like, we, we'll go into the other things, but let's start with Arena and how you have seen this impact the landscape of Magic.
1: Well, certainly it has opened the doors for, uh, not necessarily a whole new generation, but a whole new scope of, like, the, the scope of Arena is still not we still haven't fully felt that. Like, it, it's opening the door for a lot of people to reduce the barrier to entry. You know, the number of people who now stream Magic, who it turns out always did play, like, you know, Savits, right? Like, who who made top four at the Mythic Invitational, is a very successful Hearthstone streamer and, you know, tournament player. He he now plays Magic. And it's not that he he didn't play Magic before; he always did, but Arena now gives him the ability to play Magic on stream. And so now it's a lot more visible. Uh, It also is clearly giving a lot of people the ability to play and the desire to play when they wouldn't necessarily uh, have done so earlier. So it's, you know, look, I I actually do like Magic Online. I played a lot of Magic Online. It's what got me started as a competitive player, a professional player. Uh, I still play it. I played some today, you know, but it's a way to play Vintage Online now, which is awesome. But I don't think that uh, Magic Online is what you would use if you wanted to expose new people to magic, and in fact, it has consistently not done a good job of that, just because it just looks like a video game from the 90s, right? It doesn't (laughs) look like a a modern video game.
0: It's still stuck there, yes.
1: Yeah, and Arena isn't. You know, Arena is very clearly designed for for looks as well as play, and that shows.
0: I know that I'm only a data point of one, but I started playing Arena recently as part of quote-unquote work research. And uh, <laughs> that's how I justified it. And yeah. I- I've never played Magic Online despite all these years. I've only played paper. And the first day I played Arena, six hours passed by. And I played the next day to try and get the free deck that they said they would they would promise me <laughs> for the next day. And it's just it's just this dopamine rush. And I had no idea that I would enjoy playing the pre constructed decks so much. But here I am playing Arena and I and I hope to I hope above all else that they never ever release a mobile version, or else my life would just be over <laughs> oh yeah, so uh, yes, it, it is a game changer, it really is and so, yeah, you talked about how streaming really you know streaming plus arena that that's for you know how certain personalities are starting to come up, who've always played magic. How about streaming as a whole like because you you guys are sort of at channel farbo are sort of the the forefathers of content and video content, but streaming adds a whole new. Dimension now, you know, every day I go on to twitch. I can see all these streamers, you know, sometimes on my front page H- How do you see that evolving and and going in terms of the streaming experience both for viewers and also for streamers?
1: Well, I think magic I mean oh, there, there were magic streamers before arena like, you know, you have Paul as one of the earlier ones Uh you know Ken Kenji Numat, the Nummy is still very successful. Gabby
0: Spartz, yeah, I mean all time all time streamers, yeah, absolutely. Like they're legends in my mind. So
1: yeah, and uh, well, not not Paul, but the other two definitely. No, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's it's a game changer now in terms of like you know the kind of viewership numbers you can expect and what people are watching for. And then now you have this injection of tons of new people into the streaming ecosystem because first of all you have the people like. You know Savitz or Show or any of the people who've come over from Hearthstone, uh, Professor Knox, like all these like pretty big streamers, Hearthstone or other games. Uh, you know Day Nine does some streaming. Kibler's now back streaming Magic, and then you also have uh, the MPL, which is something that we haven't talked about yet, and the 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 fact that all those streamers have a contract to you know to stream ten hours a week, and all, almost all of them are streaming more than that. But that was just a good... Get their foot in the door, basically. The number of streamers has gone up dramatically, and now you actually have a lot of different options when it comes to what kinds of streams you want to watch. Like, do you want to watch someone just talk about Limited and, you know, explain every single turn in excruciating detail? That, that's Ben <laughs> Benes will do that. You know, if you want to watch uh, someone play a bunch of wacky decks, you know, you have, a, you have you know, a bunch of streamers who will do that. If you want to just watch you know, someone who's going to play competitive best of three ranked, like you have a lot of MPL members who will do that. And it means that streaming is now, honestly, you know, the the whole channel fireball, like TV channel thing, like streaming is that Twitch is that where you can find almost any kind of magic you want, uh, available there pretty easily.
0: Right. There's something for everyone, right?
1: Yeah. and, 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 both in terms of, like, what kind of energy level you want. You know, do you want, you know, someone who's really energetic and, you know, has, like, you know, is going for, like, these big moments? Do you want someone who's a little more laid-back and relaxed? Do you want, you know, do you want – what do you want to watch? What format do you want to watch? There's all of it there. And there's going to be – and there has been some overlap between streaming competitive play. What does it mean to be a pro Magic player? What what are the metrics for success? And I think that there's a (laughs) A lot of uncertainty as to how exactly it's going to go, but I I do think it it is positive for Magic and the people involved.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And what about for competitive play as a whole? I mean, it's one event, but it was the biggest event being the Mythic Invitational. What do you see that kind of foreshadowing in terms of things to come from Wizards of the Coast and Magic Esports?
1: Well, definitely that uh, arena tournaments are going to be the headliners. like. I know that a lot of people have seen the success here of Arena and where the the, the emphasis as a, as a way of like they, they, they see that as paper magic, you know, being, uh, you know, paper magic being at risk. I don't see it that way at all. I think that b- both these things feed each other really well. But when it comes to like tournaments and viewership, the the Mythic Invitational blew everything else out of the water. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. But I think arena is a big part of that, and that's one that I expect to we us to see more of in the future, in terms of where the focus is, where the emphasis is.
0: What are some other things, other than arena itself, that really impressed you about the Mythic Invitational?
1: Uh, I think that the coverage team did a very good job. They they it was a good mix of people like you know Marshall and Paul who are kind of like coverage mainstays at this point and then new folks who kind of bring a different vibe and energy you know you had you had becca scott as the floor reporter you had uh alias v as a play-by-play and then you had kibler and day nine as hosts and like that, that's just a different lineup than what we normally see and i think that 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 definitely helped uh, but again it's it's not that there's any one thing like, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that arena is a very good way to showcase magic tournaments. Like as a viewing experience, as a covering experience, uh, as a playing experience, all of those things it's very good at. Uh, I think that, well, anytime you say you're going to give away a million dollars and you have a huge stage that also helps. So that that's not necessarily uh, something that couldn't (laughs) be replicated, but uh, you know, I, I think that, I think that there's a lot of things you can do to make tournaments more successful, and this had a good mix of those. I, I do, you know, part of part of what would worry me going forward is if the conclusion was best of one is the best. Because <laughs> I, I don't think that's so, the case something in Something
0: tells me that they're going to experiment with different formats.
1: Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, because, like, you know, kind of what we talked about earlier, like, you, you you, have to kind of parse out what what was good and what was bad out of all these various things. And in this particular case, I think that, like, this tournament was successful despite the format, not because of it. I don't think that the best of one standard format showcased Magic in a in a way that you know it Magic deserves to be showcased. Just the the deck diversity was low, and the overall quality of games I think was 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 somewhat lower than a lot of Magic that we we could we could play here.
0: Now, if you were to put your game designer hat on, almost like a tournament designer hat on, I know that you're just someone who participated, but why do you think they went with something like dual standard?
1: Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, they hadn't done a best of one tournament and, you know, all, the vast majority of people who play choose to play best of one. So I think it makes sense to try to cater and see to that. And more relatable in some way, right? Yeah. And you know, the tur- you know, you get to watch this and then decide what best of one deck do you want to play. But I don't, I also think that uh, just because everyone plays, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best viewing experience. and, it's tough to figure that out the other thing is you had a mix of that the invite list to this tournament was was unique and i don't think we're going to see another tournament this year with quite the same list because this tournament had 30 MPL members and 25 26 like uh invites like invited people so these are like streamers this is the invite i got you know you had like a mix of like mostly streamers but a couple other like content type folks so you know And then the top eight arena people on the ladder, Mm -hmm. and if you did a normal turn, like a normal best two out of three tournament, I suspect that the MPL members would have uh, cleaned up because. The skill gap between the most skilled people in the tournament and the less experienced people in the tournament is way bigger than a normal
0: tournament. Right, and that's not a knock on those players because it's like it's if, you, if you went and go played in a basketball tournament with people who've been playing basketball for twenty years, it's obviously they obviously have an advantage, right?
1: Right, the the, the, the kind of a I think the a, a good comparison for basketball would be like if you had a tournament that had. Okay, well, we he, we're going to have an exhibition an exhibition tournament. That the participants in the tournament, we're going to play one on one. It's going to be all the MVPs. So it's going to be LeBron James. It's going to be Kevin Durant. It's going to be Steph Curry. It's going to be you know the, the whole All Star lineup. And then we're going to invite uh, the hosts of the Tonight Show, the cast of Saturday Night Live, and the top eight people of in our amateur basketball league. Mm-hmm. Like, what would happen in that tournament? You know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, LeBron James, you know, <laughs> would dunk on Jimmy Fallon or whatever.
0: <laughs> it doesn't matter who you ask who played in the Invitational. I think they could all say that it was designed to be sort of to have more variance and have more, I don't know what the right term for it is.
1: Right. And, and what's important is that that's not a knock on Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon's a very successful person, a more successful than almost any basketball player. It's just he's not the best at basketball. He's the, you know, he's 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 an entertainer. And. A lot of these streamers, I mean, were quite skillful and are quite skillful, but I don't think they would put, say that they're, they're, you know, they're better than William Jensen or Reed Duke, you know, Andrea Mangucci, like that's not a knock on them. These are the 30 that, you know, the MPL is the, is the 32 most successful professional magic players of the, uh, you know, the current time. So it's, it's. It makes sense that if you have a tournament that's a mix of personalities, and that's that's part of why I think the tournament was successful. It's awesome that you you get to watch, you know, Amy the Amazonian, you know, play magic uh, against uh, Luis Salvato or whatever. But you also, I think, having a higher variance format does make it so that everyone's on a slightly more even playing field because you're just increasing that you're increasing the the luck and making it more likely that someone can can kind of punch above their weight class, which I think is totally fine for the what the tournament was supposed to be. But I also don't think we're going to see another tournament that looks like that because the other arena tournaments this year are, well, the MPL plus winners of qualifying tournaments, which is a lot different than. You know, picking a bunch of people who are, are special are
0: invites, as it were.
1: Special invites. And I don't think it's quite as necessary to to have a format that gets you that outcome.
0: Got it. And you know, if I may say, there is one thing that I felt from my point of view, I was glued to the to Twitch the whole the whole weekend too. There there is something here that makes it really good for viewers, is that I I do think the MPLs or traditional Magic players can also learn from the special entities oh, because totally. because some of the most hype, best moments where there was sheer excitement or even like the post-game interviews, you could tell that those invited people that have been in, on stream for ages or are just personalities in their own right, they do an excellent job of sort of presenting their brand. And that's something that I think Magic players and MPL pros need to sort of step up their game as well in this new world. You know what I mean?
1: Uh. Totally. I've been on that side, that side for, for so long. And I think that's one of the things they definitely need to learn from these streamers is be entertaining. You're, you're, you're an entertainer. And like, I get that that's part of what, you know, it goes into the uncertainty of what's going to happen with professional magic because there are professional magic players. I know I've talked to them who want to be professional magic players. They want to show up and have the best chance of winning the tournament. And that's what their focus is on. You know, I, that's never been where I'm at. I've at. I've always considered myself an entertainer primarily. Like that's my first job, and that's I think that that's a you know a really cool way to go about things because I think that's the world we're we're in, and that's that helps wizards get their stated goals too, which is more people watching. But I can't blame people for wanting to be the best at this and, and deciding that's where they're going to focus. I just think that well, if, if we're in a landscape where you're judged on how many view- eyeballs you can bring to the table you should put a thought towards how entertaining you want to be. I just understand that can be a, a cause for unease if you're not sure what metrics are the most important and how you're going to get there. If, if you're like, look, I I want to play 60 hours of Magic a week and, and just be the best at Magic I possibly can. I, I'm not interested in playing it up for the crowd. And then if, the, if, the, if what we're seeing is, well, being entertaining is part of your job as a professional Magic player, then, yeah, we're, th- there might be some growing pains there.
0: Yeah, and it's tough if you're not LSV, you're not like handsome and uh, you know top five all time <laughs> in magic and a entertainer, you know first and foremost, you know. So, <laughs> well,
1: uh, I, I don't know that I would describe myself in all those ways, but uh, I do think that I know how to be a buffoon. So I'll, I'll settle for that. I mean, like look, look at me and Cedric's grudge match, right? Like the match itself was not
0: good. Yeah, objectively, was low quality. I know, but Cedric... the, the the drama leading up to it was great. I have to say. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, like C- Cedric beat me in ten minutes with two white weenie decks, but that kind of is secondary to the point, which is me and Cedric spent weeks talking trash to each other. And in fact, we still did post tournament, you know, somehow. Uh, and I think that, that 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 is really that's what gets people hype about this. And look, not everyone's gonna want to do this, nor should they. You you kind of have to make your own decisions as to what you value. But I love this kind of stuff and I think this is the path forward. So it is where I would spend time and energy if I were someone looking to succeed at Magic is don't just focus on how good you are. Focus on inter- the entertainment value. Like There's a reason that a lot of these people are were invited to this tournament and it wasn't just... It was not a list of who's the best players at Magic because I think that that would have led to a less entertaining tournament.
0: Yeah, and hey, you know, I could not be happier at the, the top two players from this event. I mean, Andrea Mangucci... He's been doing legacy videos forever uh, on, oh, yeah. on CFB, uh, mind you. You know, he's super entertaining and I, 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 don't, I, I can be objective here. I don't think he's the best player in the world, but I think he has a certain brand and he knows how to build his audience. And he's just a, a delight to watch. So it was really good to, uh, to, to see him at the top, as it were.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm a big Mangucci fan. I, 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 I always love interacting with him on Twitter and talking to him. And uh, we, we, we like a lot of the same things, which is good food and, and beta magic cards. So uh, I, I think he, he, he's an awesome winner. He, you know, uh, he is is very enthusiastic. He, he fits this mold very, very well. He's very entertaining. And I, I think that he's one of the better people that they could have had win the tournament.
0: Yeah. And I, I also didn't know the the second place finisher, Piotr, all that well, but I was really impressed, too, for two reasons. Um, he was sort of humorous in a dry way, and he also had that propeller hat. and uh, Yo, the hat, yes. It was so awesome. Like, you know, he's also from Poland, which means that he's representing magic on sort of a global stage. And I, I thought it was really cool to see him there, too. And it was just really fun to see personalities like that, you know?
1: Oh, yeah. And I think that he, he he did a good job of representing that as well.
0: I agree with you in the sense that I feel like there's a lot of uh, experimentation and room for improvement. But as a whole, I think the event, I mean, by any metric or even non-metrics, like you could say, was, was quite successful, right?
1: Oh, totally. Uh, the event was a runaway success. And I still maintain that that was despite the format, not because of it.
0: And that's not even a hot take at this point, I think.
1: No. And I think that they, that leaves me with a ton of optimism going forward of like, magic can achieve these great things. And, you know, we might have to, it might take some time to figure out exactly what the best balance of all this is. Because, look, you don't want to have, uh, a, you know, it's not fun to watch a rock, paper, scissors contest, right? Uh, you know, we're just going to show up and flip coins and act entertaining while doing so. But it's also, you know, I, I don't think magic necessarily. Needs to just be this like intricate chess match, chess match where people sit there and think for two minutes before making a play because that's not fun to watch either. So let's find a way to make it really exciting, and have strategy and have depth and but accomplish all these things at the same time. And I, I firmly believe that is possible.
0: That's very well put. I'm wondering, Luis, what the future holds for you if you were to project maybe. year or even three years into the future what do you see as sort of your goals as a magic professional or as a content professional
1: that's a good question Um, uh, a lot of my focus is on the projects I work on uh, you know making sure Eternal has the best chance to succeed. Poured my heart and soul into that, uh, making sure Channel Fireball is equipped to face the future, wh- whatever that future might look like. Uh, a lot of, it, you know, we have some exciting stuff. I, I, wish it was at a point where I could talk about it because this would be a perfect opportunity to do so. You know, I'll, always got to get your shilling value in, but, uh, but, uh, you know, that'll have to come later. The, working on a lot of cool stuff in that regard as well. So I, I'm kind of, like, the, if I got to choose what. Where, I, where to put my luck, right? You know, if you, assuming everyone has a finite supply of luck, I, I know that's not how it works. But assuming they did, I would put my luck on the projects I'm working on rather than my tournament successes. Because, and maybe this is uh, again me speaking from a position of privilege, but I don't have a ton. I need feel like I need to prove. Like my biggest, the biggest thing for me going into every tournament is I want to play up to the level I believe I can play at. I want to not like embarrass myself i want to i i don't want to do a bad job by my own metrics i i don't i'm not that worried about uh needing to hit any certain levels in terms of like finishes to to prove that i'm good at magic i think i've i've done that already you know <laughs> it would be hard to argue that uh so i it's more on the things i'm working on because i that that is stuff that takes a lot of my time and attention and you know my hopes and dreams that said, I, I'm going to be making magic content in three years. I would be shocked if I were not. And what that content will look like, I don't know. It might have more of a streaming emphasis. It might have less. You know, it might be more on-channel Fireball. It, you know, might take some other form. I, I don't know. But it's going to be I'm, – I'm still going to be part of it. Like I'm, I'm very connected to this game. It's integral to my life. It it is something that I don't see uh, cha- that I don't see that changing in the foreseeable future. And I know that at some point it might, at some point I might take a step back but now is, now is like kind of the opposite. I'm putting my, you know, I'm putting my foot on the gas pedal now because there's just so much going on.
0: What's something that you would tell the younger LSV from five years ago, if you could go back in time and tell him something,
1: this has gotten better almost every year of my life, but I still am not where I'd want to be on that is just don't care what other people think. Like one of the, one of the biggest like level ups I ever, I ever got was when I realized like people just don't care about what you do. Like they're not paying as much attention to all the things you think they're caring about. Like, you know, like you, (laughs) you, you, you wore mismatched socks or you spilled something on your shirt. People just don't even care or notice. You shouldn't, you shouldn't hold back on doing the things you want to do because you you're worried about what other people think and i wish a a younger me spent way too much time worrying about that and even five years ago i was a lot better at that but i'm still better at that now than i than i was today just be more assertive be more you know confident be more like always ask like the the, honestly the worst that can happen in most cases when you ask is is that someone says no and (laughs) <laughs> I mean you're a good example of this how many times have you asked me to go on
0: the podcast <laughs> <laughs> well how long has it been just two years or something like that it's been it's been three years
1: I think you probably asked me like 10 times or something
0: like and
1: I kept saying no but keep asking me because you know I, I just didn't have the time or inclination or whatever at the time but now we're here we're doing it and it would if you had just taken that first no and never asked again it wouldn't have happened but you know you're you're persistent which is really good and i think, not being afraid to put yourself out there is is just such a big thing when it comes to basically any facet of life, and it's really hard to do. and that's one of the things I feel like you just generally get better at as the, the older you get. and I don't really know that there's a way to shortcut that, but maybe me saying this can can help, you know, can help someone listening realize that going for the things you want to go for is so much better than just sitting there and watching things pass you by or not knowing what would happen because if you ask and get told no about you know a job, a date, a, uh, you know any uh, uh, anything anything like that and you get told no at least you know at least you know and maybe you can learn from that if you don't say anything all you're going to worry about 5 years later is like you know i really wonder if i should have tried harder to get to you know to to get that internship or whatever
0: yeah what's the saying you miss all the shots that you don't take or something like that
1: yeah i think that michael scott i think said that <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: yeah michael scott is the was the original innovator before patrick chapin exactly <laughs> so
1: yeah i mean I, I i it's something i've gotten a lot better on um i try to i try to encourage people to do so when i can it's just it's just hard because our natural inclination is to be to be unassuming and to be cowardly and to be <laughs> you know to not rock the boat and the the, the boat could stand to, to to use some rocking in most cases most cases no one's going to make you do things outside your comfort zone and you have to do that yourself
0: what's the advice that you would give to a player who is playing in their first magic tournament
1: I think that uh, not not putting too much of an emphasis on results just try to have fun and don't focus on winning as being the goal because if you go and winning is the only way you're gonna be happy if you don't top eight you're gonna be unhappy you're gonna be unhappy at almost every tournament you go to and that's kind of a setup for failure so I think that having you know, realistic expectations or even no expectations. Like, you know, I don't have expectations when I go to a tournament. I don't go to a tournament and be like, yep, I'm going to top eight this one. I just go and play. And when I top eight, I'm happy. And when I don't, yeah, sometimes I'm pretty sad. But at least I I, I wasn't, like, putting it all on, like, making top eight. I just know that can be – that's one of the outcomes. In fact, the most likely outcome. So don't, don't worry too much about trying to finish any particular place to prove to you or your other people – that you're worthy or valid or your preparation was good or you're you're good at magic or whatever just go and play and try to get as much as you can out of the experience
0: would you say that for your magic career you were mostly happy or unhappy
1: uh mostly happy um i i'm lucky enough to have had a lot of success uh and that i mean it's really easy to be happy when you're doing well i've had a couple pretty big droughts when it comes to to like pro level success like i i hit silver one year when i you know the you know for for those who don't know like the pro club it was like silver was the lowest level platinum was the highest and given the amount of tournaments i went to i would hit silver just based on the minimum points i would go to so when i say i hit silver it means i did not win much more than the minimum which means i lost at every tournament and i had a pretty solid drought there and it didn't feel good i was pretty unhappy but having gone through that i think makes me better again in the future with dealing with that cuz now when i have a losing streak i mean i know just know those things are possible paulo vitor damarosa one of the best players of all time uh you know it was silver two years in a row and you know if he can it, it basically it, if that can happen to him it can happen to literally anyone so it's it's hard to it's hard to get too too bogged down in that even when even when it, it you know, it is hard to deal with in the moment. Like I, I think I hit one of my lowest lows in magic when I lost in the Invitational last week. It was just really hard to deal with because it was a combination of having the worst possible finish, which was O two, the, it being really short because most tournaments, if you go to a pro tour, you have to go, you have to get pick up five losses before you're out. So minimum, you're playing five best two or three matches. Here, I lost two best of one, you know, duo standard matches. And I was out. I played 5 games of magic. <laughs> I think I played magic for 20 minutes. And it just felt unbelievable that I'd tested for 2 months for this tournament where I was out in 20 minutes. It was just like I'd never had an experience like that. So it it was it was pretty rough, especially with the amount of money at play and you know how 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 little uh, I liked playing the format. It was really hard to deal with, but I'm I'm okay now. it was it was a pretty rough day or so.
0: When you had those low lights, not not this past weekend, but from before when you were in the drought, what was it mentally that kept you going? Because I can see it very easily like some other person may have just said I'm going back to my my day job or I'm going to stop magic for a bit. For you, what kept you in it mentally?
1: Um probably that I still knew and believed I was great at magic. Like I had and that can be hard too because I know that this advice isn't as applicable to everyone who's listening because if you haven't experienced success, you might not have much to like fall back on, but this is like, I'd already won a pro tour. I had a bunch of pro tour top eights. Like I knew I was good at magic. And even though my confidence took a hit there and I started to doubt that I still at the baseline was like, you know what? I I know I'm good at magic. I know I understand this. And I was able to just kind of help, myself put it in perspective and realize i was just having a bad run it can be harder when um when you don't know that about yourself actually (laughs) i remember a really funny anecdote from here uh jared betcher was experiencing a lot of tournament success at this point he had top 16 like two pts in a row he was platinum and i remember watching him play and he was playing so bad and i remember thinking this guy's winning it all, and I'm losing it all. <laughs> and he's playing like this. Do I not understand magic anymore? Like seriously, is there something that I'm not getting? How can this this guy be winning
0: so much? Turns out he was cheating and got banned for it. Right, he was stacking the lands with the shuffles and stuff. Right? He was
1: he was he was he was rigging the deck while shuffling. That made me feel so much better because
0: <laughs> I just experienced this. I remember very clearly this moment where I was just like, "That was like your rock bottom." Was like, "What's happening here?" Right.
1: Yeah, if this guy's winning and I'm losing, is, there's just got to be something that I don't understand going on. The part that I didn't understand was he was literally cheating. But you know, that, at the time, I didn't know that. So it was it was pretty rough to, to handle.
0: <laughs> it's been great talking to you, Luis. I guess this conversation was, by our admission, three years in the making. But I'm really glad that we finally connected. And, oh, man, I mean, this it's just been a great conversation. I hope you feel the same.
1: Oh yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I'm I'm glad I came on the podcast. You know, the time was right. You know, everything happens the way it's supposed to. Uh, so <laughs> uh, e- even if it took a little a little time to get together, I'm, I'm I'm glad it all worked out, and I I was really happy with how this went.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna try to be confident here too. You had maybe one of the worst events of your life over the weekend, but now you had <laughs> one of the greatest events was recording this with me. So there you go. It,
1: exactly. This is one of easily one of my highlights of this uh, Tuesday.
0: <laughs> I, I did have a pretty good lunch. Yeah, I think I think brushing your teeth was probably like a, a close tie for first, right? Oh no, that's a low light. Who likes brushing their teeth? <laughs> that's right. It's that's overrated. Yeah, but yeah, thank you so much, and I, I wish you all the best. Yeah, thanks a lot, James. This is a uh, this is a, a lot of
1: fun, and uh, you know, I, I suspect some at some point down the line we may revisit it. Who knows?
0: Yeah, maybe it'll be you know ten years from now, but we'll make it work. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good.